Hi everyone, it's Dave Mutson here, at Dave Mutson on Instagram, and I am so, so excited to welcome you to season two of Constant Writers, the podcast where I talk to indie horror authors about them, about their work, and of course, about their relationship with Stephen King. So over the course of this series, and the previous series, if you haven't checked that out already, and I strongly suggest you do, you're going to meet a bunch of indie horror authors and you're going to learn more about what motivates them, about their writing styles, about what sort of things they write about. And then we're going to geek out on Stephen King. And in each episode, each of my guests has nominated one Stephen King book in particular for us to take a bit of a deeper dive into. And then we wrap up with the 19 question quickfire Stephen King challenge. Now I mentioned there is season one already. Do check back through your feeds if you haven't listened to that. There's some great interviews there for you to be had. But we are here today to celebrate season two the launch of season two and I couldn't be happier with the first guest for this season. It is my friend Scott Woods who is an acclaimed award-winning poet. He's a columnist, an activist, an author, a podcaster, an artist and a librarian as, as well and he's a really really nice guy and he's very well known in the Stephen King space for his Stephen King and the Magical Negroes lecture which I will link to in the description for this episode and we will do talk about in this chat. So some things about Scott, you can check out some of his work. I've got his collection of poems, Urban Contemporary History Month, which you can pick up. And his book of choice for this episode is one that's quite, quite heavily tied to his Magical Negroes lecture. It's kind of the inspiration for that lecture, really. It's the Green Mile. And what we go into, Scott talking about the Green Mile, is absolutely worth you listening or watching depending whether you're joining me here on youtube or you're joining me in your ears via whatever podcasting platform you listen to um so i think that is about it there are things you can do to support me if you want to in the description you'll find links to sign up to my newsletter you get a free ebook of some of my fiction for doing that and you get weekly indie horror author recommendations and short stories from me you can buy my quiz book, the Ultimate Stephen King quiz book, which is on my shelf behind me and I totally forgot to pick it up for recording this first part. So, hey, that shows how good a salesman I am. And as I mentioned, you can follow me on Instagram and all of those kind of things. But really, I just want you to stick around and listen to Scott because Scott knows where it's at. He is a great person to chat to. Uh, this is a chat that I've been planning for months and months. And it was actually the first time Scott and I got to talk to each other using our voices well we've been friends via dm for a long time but this was the first time we actually had a proper conversation so i hope you enjoy it as much as i did i'll be back on the other side just to basically say the same that i said here but in less time but otherwise let's get into it season two concert writers episode one talking magical negroes poetry and the green mile it's the fantastic scott woods Scott, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome you to Constant Writers. How are you doing? I am feeling awesome, and I am extremely honored to be here. Well, I'm extremely honored to have you. It's, um, it's as we were saying before we push record, you and I have talked a lot via DMs, but actually using our voices with each other, this is the first time. So it's, it's a really, really good experience, and really great to have you on to chat about what we're going to chat about. I mean, we've got, we've got a lot to talk about, particularly when we get on to Stephen King, but... As you know from series one of this podcast, I want to start this chat with talking about you. And, and there's a lot to chat about with you. I mean, you know, you're a, you're a poet. I've, I've, I've literally got your book here 
or one of your books. You're a columnist, you're a, a scholar of, of King and of Prince, you're an artist, an activist, podcaster, um, a busy man, and a lot of it connected to reading and writing. I mean, you, you're a librarian, of course, as well. So I guess, like, what's your, what's your origin story with authoring things literature? Like, when did you fall in love with, with writing and reading, I guess? Yeah, I've always been a reader from a very young age, advanced, so I'm told. But, um, and I keep a shelf of books in my personal library that I refer to as my time machine shelf. And it's stuff I've tracked down over the years that I used to read as a kid. Uh, most of the books I stole from an older brother who was into science fiction and whatnot. And half of the things on that shelf are pretty heady stuff. I would have been stealing those books around the age of seven or so. <laughs> and uh, even the children's literature that I was reading was pretty dark. Lots of Roald Dahl, that sort of thing. Yeah. So very young, very young. But um, I think my first experience with like language, besides using it, was actually Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby used to do these picture pages, right? <laughs> Newspaper inserts, and it had an accompanying TV show and he would go on there and do the activities in the paper and you could do the activities at home with Bill Cosby on TV. And I would have been doing that when I was like four. Right. Mate. So yeah. thanks Bill Cosby, I guess. Look <laughs> <laughs> like, good. And, and in terms of like you, you've, you've achieved a lot with your writing. Like when, when did you start taking it more seriously and like what sort of things did you write? first like we we straight into poetry or were you writing stories first or we we writing columns as a child like how, how did you get how did you get started <laughs> so writing was the thing that i also did very early on and that was initially stories like <laughs> short stories this third or fourth grade um i was a big fan of choose your own adventure books yeah and so that's like that was an easy hook and um it was like reading five adventures at once, right? So it was very inspiring to me. Um, I don't think I got into poetry until I was a preteen. Okay. And heartache kind of became the order of the day, right? And so the cliche poet origin story, mm -hmm. that was almost definitely sixth grade, right? Yeah. And I, I can see the choose your own adventure thing. I mean, in, in, in this one, which I've been going through this week, you know, most of the poems end with a, if you're this, go to page whatever. If you're this, go to page whatever. I, I like that as an extra, an extra bit of interactivity for the book. It's really, it's really nice. Um, Thank you. Um, poetry is an interesting one. I think you're the first poet I've, I've had on this podcast. And I mean, I've mentioned to you before we started talking, like, I've long been fascinated with, but also I won't like quite intimidated by poetry. Like I really like how it's, a, how it's connected to the spoken word. And I guess it's almost a spoken art form before it's a written one, but also like as someone who's not well-versed in poetry, even just looking at a poem on a page and seeing like, why are the line breaks there? Why, why is, why is half of the poem aligned right? Why is half of it in italics, whatever? Like there are things that just that just throw me some somewhat so i guess take me inside the mind of a poet like how how do you write poetry and how would it compare to writing say an article or a story so well let me first commend you on getting the history right right so for centuries whatever we might call poetry was entirely oral mm -hmm. until about 3000 bc give or take 
uh, depending on where you are in the world, but basically 3000 BC. Anyhow, as to your question about composing poetry, it's pretty much the same for every poet. You see or experience something that activates you intellectually or emotionally, or you are struck with this great feeling, or you simply do what every other writer does and conceive of a story, and you simply use poetry tools to capture it instead of song or prose. There's nothing outstanding about the way that poetry happens except for your creative weapon of choice. Um, and I would encourage you not to be intimidated by poetry because it's written by poets who generally are very soft people, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, the less discussed question underneath the question is why do people choose poetry to capture those things as opposed to her? And that one usually comes down to the person. For me, I always wrote every kind of thing. So poetry was mostly a logic challenge. Right? Can I do this thing? Can I capture it in poetry, right? Uh, or, or is this something that needs to be something else? Turns out, compared to other types of writing, poetry is pretty easy to do poorly. And so few people care about poetry. Uh, they, so you can go a long way doing it poorly before anyone notices. <laughs> uh, also, poets keep poetry mysterious on purpose. Because if people realized how vast the poetic possibilities were, then everyone would do it and we'd lose our magic. <laughs> so when you see poetry from like 100 years ago, you see a lot of technique. And when you see poetry from 10 years ago, you see a lot of storytelling and emotion, <laughs> which is why it's such a popular expression on social media. Yeah. Uh, most of that poetry is bad by traditional measures, but it's extremely effective as an emotional net, which is what people have always come to poetry for anyway. So in short, right, I choose the poetry tool out of the toolbox when the ideas hit. Sometimes that idea turns into a novel or a short story or an essay, but poetry is quick and fast, which is part, if not the bulk of its appeal mm -hmm. uh, compared to other kinds of writing. You can get in and out of poetry pretty quick. Yeah. You write a poem today and have it published tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And considering most poets are very soft creatures who love validation, that's a win-win. And how about you? Are you, are you a technique poet or are you a storytelling poet or have you got do you, have you got a blend of the two? Like, would you put yourself in either camp? I am almost entirely a storyteller. Right. Um, I only use technique in aid of the story. I don't try to make the story apply to technique. Yeah. I can. I've done it in the past. There are instances when, you know, a technique, and when we say technique, we're talking about things like form. We're talking about, you know, um, you know, all the tools that poets, you know, traditionally use. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, for the most part, I just concern myself with, is this the story? Right. Yeah. And then I may have to, you know, poeticize it a little, but, um, I find my stuff, you know, tends to go over with people because it's story. Yeah. And I, that makes sense to me. I, I, I said, I've been reading your book this week and apologies. I can't remember the title of it off the top of the head, but there's a, there's a poem in here about, um, going to see the NWA movie and, <laughs> The last stanza verse section of that really made me sort of put the book down and just just take a moment and think and like that I can I, I get your storytelling technique coming through there because you kind of 
you built me in you sort of took me down one road built me up and then like the last bit was just like boom okay here's here's the the punchline almost so yeah i thought that was that was really powerful and um yeah i I get that the sort of the storytelling element for sure in terms of the um we mentioned earlier the performance like the, the actual oral element of poetry I'm keen to hear a bit more about how important that is for you, because I know also in this answer, I'd love to tell you, I'd love you to tell me and the people watching and listening a bit more about your, your 24 hour solo poetry readings, because I'm I'm really fascinated to hear more about that. But I'm guessing if you're putting yourself through the challenge of what is it, doing poetry for 24 hours and not repeating a poem, you must like performing these poems, I guess. (laughs) Sure. Um, I love uh, reading poetry publicly, right? It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, I come from a competitive poetry slam background. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the whole goal was engagement. And, uh, while I, for many years now, have not done that, you know, you never lose those tools. And so, um, it's great to get up in front of a room of people who maybe don't even know if they like poetry. And you make the sell, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's your work, great, you know, even better, right? But um, the 24-hour readings are not all my poems for the record, okay. to be clear. Um, I have a lot of poems, but... And I might have 24 hours worth of poems, <laughs> but I did that like eight years in a row with no repeats. And so for the most part, that was the work of other poets, which made that job easier, but there is no easy 24 hour performance, anything. No, no. And was, was the motivation of that purely the challenge of doing it or is it, was it, were you fundraising? Was it, what, what was, what was, where did it come from as an idea? Yeah, that was entirely about the experience. I just wanted to see if it could be done. Well, first of all, I had to see if it had been done. Yeah. Technically. You know, by Guinness World Book standards, it had not. They don't actually have a record for that. They have a record that's similar, but not really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once I determined that it was a thing that we could kind of put our finger down on and say, this has not been done before, that was the first appeal. And the second appeal was, what do I, how, how many poems would that, you know, I love answering these artistic questions. How many poems would that take? How, how alive would you be by the end of it? You know, and so um, I just grabbed like a hundred poetry books or something and all of my poems and uh, booked a room and just did it in the room. And people would come whenever they wanted to come and stay as long as they wanted to stay. And um, and it got it got that first year. It was really dicey. Right. (laughs) Like it was I did it all wrong. Right. Like I started at midnight and it was I was like, oh, no, this is a mistake, you know. So, um, but it was, uh, it was a journey. And then every year I did it after that, it was about what else could I learn about myself as a poet, um, as a lover of poetry, as a presenter, as a performer, you know, you'll learn a lot about yourself if you just do something for 24 hours. Yeah. And I mean, you, you said one of the questions you asked yourself going into it was like, how would you be at the end of it? Like, how were you at the end of that first one? Yeah, the first one I was completely destroyed. <laughs> I think again, did it all wrong. It, I think it was like, yeah, it was, it was just wrong. I just did it wrong, and I didn't. 
really figure out, you know, how to work out the bathroom breaks or anything like that. You know, I think I even ate ahead of time, which was also a mistake. Right. So, um, it, you know, because it, the act of it is very much like performing a fast, It's very ritualistic once you get into it mm-hmm. and your body is going to shut down at some point, like around, well, the first year, the timing was weird, but every year after that, I started it like in the evening or in the middle of the day or something. And so around 3 a.m., my body would start, rebel- 2 a.m., my body would start rebelling, mm-hmm. right? It was like, we must sleep and you're not going to let it. And so there would be these snatches of time where I would be dozing off in the middle of poems. But um, that first year, oh man, I did, I don't, I thought I wouldn't have a voice. I did have a voice. It was just extremely deep for like two days. Like my throat was like raw, but not really raw. It was just yeah. really deep. And so that was kind of cool. Yeah. That was a nice takeaway for a couple <laughs> of days. But um, but no, I was completely wrecked. And just just lastly on poetry, I mean, I, I mentioned it's some of that intimidates me. And I mean this 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 is gonna sound this this is gonna almost sound foreskin that I'm sitting here talking to you about. You know, I have enjoyed reading your book. I, I was curious if you had any tips for someone like me who you know, I, I'm I'm an avid reader and I, I read a load of other loads of different things. But something like poetry that has never clicked, do you have any tips for what might unlock it for me? Is it, is there, a, is there somebody I should go to? Is it performance? Do I need to see a performance to, to make it click? Like what, what would your advice be? My one tip for anybody is go to an open mic mm-hmm. and just watch poets who are writing right now, who are living right now, who are talking about the things that you talk about right now. And see how they're translating that through art, right? See how they're translating that through poetry. Now I'm going to tell you, it's an open mic. So at least half of it is going to be horrible, right? But that is also important, right? It's important for you to see, okay, look, that is not good or that is great. You know, you get a range. Hopefully you get a range. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that will compel you to at least understand what poetry is doing, right? Okay. Because on the page isn't really doing anything different than poetry on the stage in terms of its goals. And so I think if you just go to an open mic and I wouldn't even really be too picky about the open mic, right? Not the best open mic, not the worst, who cares? Yeah. Um, just go, it's open. So it's always going to be up to whoever's in the room that night and see what happens. Okay. Well, that actually leads me very nicely onto my, my last question before we switch to King was I wanted to, to hear a bit about Streetlight Guild, which you're um, very heavily involved in um, in your hometown. And I know that is a, a space for art, a space for performance. So just 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 tell me and, and those watching and listening a little bit more about that, because it's, it's something that comes up. If people search for you, it does come up quite a lot. So I'm just curious to hear a bit more about it. Sure. Streetlight Guild is a nonprofit organization that I created uh, about four or five years ago now. And we do a cultural program here in my city of Columbus, Ohio. And my emphasis is on Columbus artists with a further emphasis on black artists. Um, and that's what we do. So we, I have two art galleries in the building. We do performances occasionally in the building. Um, and about an hour or so from now, the building will open up. And artists and writers will get to come in and just kind of create in the space for a few hours. We do that every Saturday. Mm-hmm. And um, 
And so, yeah, anything that I can kind of think of that would be kind of cool to help define Columbus culture is what that space is for specifically. Um, because Columbus is kind of, I don't want to say it's culture deficient, but it's identity deficient. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, well, if you tried to sit down and say, well, what's Columbus culture? It's like you would really struggle to define that. And I like cities where you, they have a character, they have identity, they have stories, they have legacy. And so I just kind of want to build that and help curate that in my city. That's what we do. There must be an incredibly valuable space for those artists who come in. I mean, do you, do you must have a, a great sense of pride about that, being able, just being able to make it happen, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, and even the way that it happened was very fairy ish right? Like I, you know, we have a building, it's a beautiful space. It's, you know, it, we don't worry about the bills, right? We keep the money coming in and, and that's awesome. Um, but like even just acquiring that space was kind of like a fairy tale. It just kind of came out of the blue. And so I just tell people that it was meant to be, whatever that means to you was meant to be. Yeah. No, great, great. And um, I'll make sure I put some more information about that in the description so people can check it out if they want to find out more. So we are here, I guess, our, our, the reason we became friends and started talking was Stephen King, and this is a, a Stephen King channel. So let's get around to talking about him. And I think people listening and watching who might already be aware of your name will probably know about your connection to King in the form of your your excellent lecture on Stephen King and Magical Negroes. And we will come to that in a moment, but I'd like to start this part of the interview with all of these, just with the same question. So like, what does Stephen King mean to you as a fan and, and what sort of place does he hold in your heart? Wow. So King is one of the most influential forces, not writers, forces in American culture mm -hmm. and has been for a greater portion of the last 50 years. And having been infected by his work at a very young age, I've basically grown up on his stories and wrestled with his worldview almost all of my life. Mm. And if you're American, Stephen King is in your DNA at this point. He is Americana. Yeah. Right. Uh, he defined what it meant to be scared in the 20th century. He's still trying to find ways to do that now. Uh, but he also wants that terror to be fun. Like fun is a value for him as he creates. Um, and he wants you to experience that. Well, he builds these roller coasters with words and his books are written in a way that makes it all very fun. And that is, uh, I wouldn't say that's uncommon with writers, but at the volume at which he produces in the genre that he tends to lean into, like it's, 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 it's really profound to find someone for whom horror is fun, right? And they want to translate that to, and then it take, right? And for me, it just took, and all of the things that he was kind of talking about, uh, and trying to capture about the American experience consciously or unconsciously, um, at, at various stages in his life. Right. Um, cause he's grown as a person and conversely, his stories have, have, uh, seen the effect of that. Um, like it's, you're kind of growing up with him. And so in a way he's, he's kind of like a friend that you never really get to talk to. He only calls you sometimes out of the yeah. blue 
and then you just kind of wait for the next call. And what about his impact on your writing? Like, how much has he impacted on on your writing? Stephen King is one of my greatest influences as a writer. Top mm-hmm. three influence. Which is not to say I write like Stephen King or I write what Stephen King writes, because neither of those things is true. Yeah. Um, his greatest gift to writers like me is that he makes certain things okay to do as a writer. Mm-hmm. So the granular, busybody first person is okay if you can pull it off, right? Some of his stories are very uh, poetic in the sense that he's great at taking a small moment and excavating it and pulling a book out of it, right? Or a story out of it. So for me, King has been a great teacher. I was not in college long enough to study writing. I, I failed college almost immediately and miserably. And so I didn't really get to study writing. All of that is Mm self-taught. And I don't know how much you know about the American public school system, but it isn't great. Right. And so if you walk away from public education with a love for literature, you got luck. You maybe caught some great teachers or librarians along the way. So King uh, was effectively my college. He was how I learned what I wanted to do as a writer and what I didn't want to do as a writer. Okay. Yeah. Seems like a pretty good teacher. Seems like you've, you've, uh, you've done pretty well out of it. So let's let's go on to your to your lecture that I mentioned, so, so King and, and the Magical Negro. So I I read about this for a while and finally got to see you deliver it um, in twenty twenty two and thought it was absolutely excellent. Um, I imagine we're likely to start crossing over with your book of choice for this chat, which is the Green Mile. So I guess without going in too much on that particular title. But I do want to spend a bit of time chatting about the lecture. And to, to start with, can you just talk a bit about how the lecture first came into being? Sure. I was reading The Green Mile in 1996. <laughs> and without getting too much into that yet, I will say that at the time, you know, I was like near my peak as a black wear activist. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, at protests or whatever rallies I was doing programming. I was teaching kids. I was in the community doing all this work. Everything at that time for me in my life was very black power. Yeah. And then the Green Mile came out. And now, mind you, I'm I'm a lifelong Stephen King fan. And so really, the Green Mile hit me at what may be like the most <laughs> uh, compelling part of my experience as a black person, right? Like that book and my self-awareness were like colliding trains. And- yeah. So, um, and, and that's when I started to realize it was a problem, but it didn't really sink in. I didn't know what to do with that relationship until, you know, several years ago when, um, I just, I was really just trying to think about what this, what this relationship was and then, and really started to dig into it. And then I said, I think I, I think there's a presentation here. I don't know if it's an essay. Or whatever, but and so the first time that um, I approached this question and material was as an essay. I was invited to write an essay for a now defunct magazine, um, Union Station Magazine, mm-hmm. and um, and I wrote the first version of what would become uh, 
the Magical Negro lecture, eventually the lecture. Yeah. Um, the essay kind of just swam out in the world for a little while. And then at some point I decided to start trying to make lectures out of it. Right, great. And, and in terms of for anyone watching or listening who might not be familiar with the term Magical Negro, I guess it'd be useful to have you define it and maybe, you know, if possible at all, if you can find maybe maybe one example in King's work, just, just to give people a bit of an illustration, that, that might be helpful. Let me see if I can try. Uh, a narrative that, so a Magical Negro is a narrative trope. And it utilizes stereotypical characters um, of color, usually black, but not always, uh, and, which is not, you know, not even true in Stephen King's work, um, whose sole purpose is to prop up white main characters while being stripped of dignity, interiority, purpose, beyond that, beyond being in service of the main character. The magic part is optional. It's the sacrifice that really sets these characters apart. Sometimes that sacrifice is literal. Usually that sacrifice is at least like a sacrifice of your character, your dignity, your backstory, you know, whatever your goals in life might be. The magic part makes it sound like that's always like somebody imbued with magical powers. That's not exactly what that means. That's kind of a play on um, how the character is kind of enacted in the, in the story or in a movie or in a show mm -hmm. and in terms of those yeah like i guess the obvious example from king would be the book we're going to talk about in a bit um being the green mile i guess yeah though he has but, many obviously right? so, yeah 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 clearly uh, I, the uh i guess you, you did ask for an example I, let's just pick one from what is you know perhaps I think probably his, I don't know if it's his best novel, but it's probably his greatest novel, the one with the greatest effect, right? The Stand. Uh, Mother Abigail is, you know, totally 100% uh, this trope, this magical Negro trope that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Which is, um, it almost, <laughs> in a sense, the way she is introduced almost circumvents that definition a little bit, right? That's the thing about this definition. It makes it so touchy is because some elements are always present, some elements are not, but the yeah. result is the same. Yeah. Um, in her case, normally a character like her would not have all the backstory, the pages and pages of backstory that Mother Abigail has. Um, so she has a lot of interiority for a magical Negro. Um, but her actions are 110% in line. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know you say in the lecture that you're, you know, the purpose of this lecture is not you being out there trying to accuse Stephen King of being a racist, and 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 by all accounts, he seems like a pretty decent human being. But the way he writes his black characters and and has done consistently for decades, I think, I guess, at best, feels misguided and, and outdated. I mean, for you, what do you see as his most problematic tropes that continue to crop up? Because he has acknowledged that in interviews for a long time that he gets this wrong but you're not sure of material in your lecture to pull examples so what what are those things that keep coming up time and time again that are, that are problematic for for you for his black characters specifically it is almost uh the most common problem is in their descriptions mm -hmm. right whether that's um 
you know, an omniscient narrator or whether that's a character perspective, it's almost in entirely consistently the way that they are introduced, right? So the way that they are described, their physicality, uh, the depth of their blackness, um, several references to being black as coal and this kind of thing. Hmm. Um, like no one is ever just an African-American in a Stephen King. Oh, right. They are like black as coal, black as night, minstrel black, right? You know, these kinds of things. The, like those are quote, those are basically quotes, right? So, yeah. um, the, so that's the most common one is in their introduction, the way that they're described. This, probably the second most common is that they are berated racially. Um, you know, they are being called in words. They are being described and, and talked to and dealt with in ways that, you know, are exceedingly racist. And, you know, and while I get that King wants to make certain characters very villainous and that racism is an easy way to go, it is not a, it is not a device without consequence, right? That has an effect. It has an effect on me as a black reader, but it has an effect on his largely white audience, his predominantly white audience. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that most white people picking up a King book, and this will be true for most white people in general, like, I don't know that they spend a lot of time discerning when instances like that are entertainment or supposed to be more symbolic or representative of reality, or if it's even a problem, you know, lots of racist read King, right? So, um, to me, it's like, yo, maybe we just don't need to hit that button so much, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So those are the two top two ways that, you know, those black characters kind of get dealt with in King out the gate. And then after that, it's just a laundry list based on what other type of character. Yeah. And again, this might be a difficult question for you to answer, but it, if you could, if you could imagine yourself in a world where you, you didn't know as much as you do about King and his character and his politics, if you were going purely based on the words that he's committed to Page. Does his writing come across like the writing of a racist person? <laughs> um, not generally, but that's only because black characters appear so infrequently in his work. Yeah. Right? Okay. If he had a black character in every book, I think it would be way more obvious. Mm -hmm. um, but he'll go, you know, entire books without black characters at all. Yeah. Um, if I read his work, Sans Politics, I think he was a raging sexist, but I would, um, you know, but when I would take some digging before the race. Okay. Okay. So I guess I, I was curious, like going back to the, the examples of, I think I put in my question, I think I asked if you had a favorite example of, of this sort of problematic element of his word. Favorite is probably not the right word, but if I say that my next question is going to be, do you have any examples of when he's written a black character well? So let's take the flip of that. Like, what, what are you, I could, we talked about Mother Abigail. We're going to talk about John Coffey in a bit. Like, are there any other standout ones that, that like, when you're going through them in your lecture, you're almost too embarrassed to go through them? They're, they're, they're so cringeworthy or, 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 or problematic or painful or anything. Like, like which ones would, would stand out? Well, um, so Mother Abigail, oh, well, 
in the same book, right? So the stand, the revised edition, which is the only edition you could get anymore. Um, you know, <laughs> the early on, there's a scene, um, the Black Junta scene, right? Like that's like grossly problem. Like I don't like to use the word problematic because it's very vague. It's grossly racist. <laughs> Yeah, like if you just had to like make a checklist of all of these stereotypes of black people, like eight out of ten of them would be in that one scene in those like three or four pages. Mm -hmm. That's like the most like probably uh, gross scene that I can point to and say, "Wow, that is rampagingly racist." <laughs> right? Yeah. Like that's yeah. a pretty bad. I remember the one that you really opened my eyes to was, um, forget if it's Finders Keepers or End of Watch, but the, the Low Town, was it Low End Town Siege? In End of Watch? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that one, like, I mean, it's, you know, I guess easier for me as a as a white male reader to, to not really have it hit me for the first time reading it. But then watching you read it and seeing your face when you're reading it, it's like, no, actually, this is really, this really bad, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's one thing that it's that that scene is there, but for it to back for that being a book that came out in twenty sixteen, like, it's frustrating, right? That it's still happening. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and that's King trying, right? Yeah. Like trying to get it kind of right, but you can tell like he he doesn't really talk to a lot of black people and. He probably gets a lot of black culture through media. Mm -hmm. All of that is very apparent in that passage of pages. And it's like, oh man, he really thinks he's helping you a little bit. <laughs> like he's addressing classism and he's addressing colorism. Right? Oh my colorism. Stephen King on colorism, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh my God. And and then the whole the description of the neighborhood and all of that, but I mean, the thing that usually sends people off the rails when I do this in the lectures is the hacky sack mention like that. It usually puts us all on the floor. Like I have never seen it ever anywhere at any time in my entire black life. Uh, any two or more black people playing hacky sack. I have never, ever. I've never even seen that depicted in a movie. So for him to put that in the book, I was just like, this is laugh out loud. I think I threw the book down when I read that, like I was laughing so hard and, uh, and but it's like, you know, and I tried to place that in the lecture at a place where, you know, near the end where we kind of need that levity at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I, yeah. I think the only time I've ever seen Hacky Sack was a bunch of white guys in metal bands doing it on a behind the scenes DVD in between sets because they're so bored out of their mind. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, crazy. So I mean, I mentioned I wanted to hear if, if you had any examples of when he has actually done this well. And I, know, I remember from the lecture there were a couple where it was like, oh, oh, okay, there there are some here that we have to dig to. Uh, off the top of your head, are, are there any that you would throw out there as as King getting it right? Yeah, um, I, I, it's important to I think keep an example in the pocket, right? Yeah. Um, Mike Hanlon in it. Mm -hmm. I think King got Mike Hanlon right. Mike Hanlon had interiority, he had culture, he had intellect and skills, he was a person, he had a family and a history, and he was able to communicate emotionally. Um, and even when King felt the need to bring racism into Mike's story, he did it in a way 
that was real to Mike and not pedestrian to King. And that's really important. That's a, a very important distinction to make because King usually drops that ball, right? He usually brings that racism, I think, in a way that he perceives is like, let me be evil, evil Stephen King here and say all these horrible things, right? Let me find the, the worst version of myself and then say those things and write those things. And then, and then it, even when it, you know, on, on the surface, it seems as if that's what's happening. Narratively, it's not. Like, it's really in service to Mike and describing why Mike is the way he is. You know, and, and, it, and it, isn't, it doesn't just generate trauma in Mike. It generates purpose and mission in Mike. Right? I thought that was, that was great. And, and Mike is clearly black, right? So yeah. th those are all very... Um, you know, hard lines to kind of, you know, walk down. But I think King nailed it in it. In the book may have other issues, but Mike is not one. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm, I'm conscious. I'm conscious about asking um, this next question, but mainly because I don't. I don't want it to feel like a, the, you know, that the thing of a, of a white guy asking their black friend to be Google and, and do the work for them. <laughs> But I, I am, I'm always interested, I'm, I'm interested to hear what you, what you hope people get from the lecture and what they do with it afterwards, but particularly white readers of King's work, like what, what, what do you hope they, they go off and, and, and maybe change or, or, or get from your lecture once they've watched it? So uh, first of all, I just want to go on record that we're now friends you, by your own admission. Um, Good. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but everything starts with a vision. Right. Hmm. And in this world, you know, every action we take starts with a thought. And so I want to put a lens on that vision that enables people to be more cognizant of the other people around them and what they're going through. I want everyone to think more critically about everything. Um, I hope that people leave it wanting to literally change the world around them. Right. Which is how you change the world. You don't go out and then change the world. You change the world around you. And then hopefully the next person does the same and the same. And so you have this chain of chain. You hope that's how that happens. And so I just want people to change the world where they are and to challenge themselves and literature to be better and to understand the power that stories have on how the world manifests, right? <laughs> like you don't have... You know, we don't have countries without vision. You know? Yeah. Somebody wanted there to be a country and then they did X, Y, and Z to make that happen. And so my goal is like, well, you know, let's put a lens on the vision. Let's let us make the vision as critical as we can make it before we start, you know, leveling things yeah. and people. Mm -hmm. And if you got the chance to sit down and chat to King himself about this. What would you say? What, what what would you want to get from that chat? I'd really want to dig into how much of this he is aware of. Yeah. And why it persists in his writing. If he's not aware of how it comes off, then I'd love to convey that to him. Mm. Uh, if he does know, and it's an issue, and he thinks what he's doing is the way to tackle that, I'd love to have that argument. Yeah. But in a very friendly, respectful way, of course, preferably 
you know, over a plate of barbecue or something. <laughs> but yeah, that, I would really want to like come down on a definitive reason. Yeah. A reason, right? Because him acknowledging that it's a problem is not enough, apparently. Right? Yeah. So I'd really want to interrogate that. Yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully you'll get a chance one day. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'd go looking for that discussion, but you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, you, you never know where he, he might be watching. He might be watching. He might give you a call one day. Well, let's say, uh, boy, <laughs> let's, let's, um, let's sort of get into the final part of this and, and jump into your, your book of choice. So, that, you know, in these interviews, I, I ask all of my guests to pick a King book to take us a bit of a deeper dive into. And we've, we've already mentioned it, it's the Green Mile. This is related to your lecture. Um, I've got, part one of the serialized version here is all on my shelves um behind me from 1996 like i remember when we were arranging this chat you said it could be fun to unpack this one again now you've done your lecture for a few years and i guess you've just had what like the, the world in general just happening for the last few years so so tell me like the green mile as we sit here and record this in 2023 like how, how do you feel about this book so i mean <laughs> since we're friends like i have always liked this book this story even while it contains what it contains uh it's it's just such a powerful example of what makes king work uh, especially in the serialized format right like if he had just sat down wrote a novel straight i think it would have been different but a little different but you know watching him kind of unpack this story serialized to me is like amazing that's that's an amazing gift to be able to do that um to know when to pull the punch and what to allude to what not to allude to like that uh that's just genius it's a, the 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 format of it is genius and putting it all together in you know one book form, so to speak, um, you know, it, it all works and it all locks and it's just, uh, it's just a powerfully well-told story. And so, yes, I, I still, um, love this book. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that's, that's good. I mean, I, I normally ask my guests about characters, um, and there's probably only one, only one character we can start with on here. It's John Coffey, not like the drink. Um, again, I, thoughts, John Coffey. Yeah. So John Coffey is a hyper racist concoction of what a black man is, right? So yeah. to be blunt. Yeah. He's the only black male character in the story. And uh, conversely, he stands in for all black men to readers. And as I kept reading through the story that kept drilling into me, right? Um, at the same time, John Coffey is very compelling. Mm. It's like the epitome of mystery, right? We know nothing about John Coffey except what we observe in those moments, which are, you know, scattered throughout, but still pretty sparse, right? Mm. Um, we don't know anything about him except what he can do. And uh, that is his, as a character, that is his blessing to the reader and that is his curse to the reader, right? So, but he is... I mean, he's an extreme, extremely racist character, right? Like, you know, yeah. there's no getting around that. 
I don't know. I know um, Brady Hendricks in he did his King reread in 2015, and I've got the quote here that he said about John Coffey. He said specifically about Coffey. Um, spoiler alert: dying. Um, but he said Coffey's death doesn't save the souls of the white people around him. It damns them, and I think he was linking that to the idea of whether or not John Coffey is a magical Negro. Like, how, how do you react to that as a as a quote from from Hendrix? I mean, I I would push back on it a little bit, but I don't entirely disagree. Mm-hmm. Um, I I certainly would want to access the the context of arriving to that conclusion, but you know, it's interesting. Um, Hendrix isn't wrong in the respect that Coffee's death doesn't save the souls of the white people around him. But, you know, there is the obvious, um, uh, there is the, there is the, re- the fact, quote unquote, the fact that these people get to go on with their lives. Yeah. And while they may be a little traumatized or maybe even scarred by, you know, having, you know, killed John Coffey, uh, knowing that he's innocent, knowing that he's powerful, knowing that he perhaps had something to give the world, um, that they get to go on with their lives. And I think that Hendrix's suggestion that it damns them, eh, that might be a little generous. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think um, if it's like how these things play out in the real world, uh, white people are perfectly okay with that after a time. Right. <laughs> so, you know, um, they get to move on. Yeah. They get to kind of close the door on that chapter of their lives. Anytime racism is kind of concerned. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not wrong. I just, I just wouldn't come down on it a hundred percent. Uh-huh. So thinking in terms of the other characters in this book, the other the other guys who spend time on that on death row there in that in that cell block, like who else jumps off the page to you as being particularly interesting, engaging, whatever characters? Who who are your favorites? Paul. Paul Hedgecombe. Um he has to be a top three first person narrator in King Book. Right. Like you really kind of want to hear him talk about anything. Um, King really um, nails him down. He nails down Paul um, in a way that he doesn't do very frequently with his first-person narrators, where he gives us too much, mm-hmm. right? Like we're getting like, you know, oh, my toenail hurts, you know, kind of levels of insight on first-person. And Paul is not like that. Paul is, I have a story to tell. I'm here to tell the story. Boom, boom, boom. King does this I mean, it's not the first time, the only time. It's definitely one of the top three times. I thought, um, uh, is it CT's Theory of Pets, I think is the name of the story? I mean, a narrator on top of a narrator. That, like, that's just awesome. Mm-hmm. But uh, Paul is like, he's an incredible... And I think that the serialization of the story probably helps shave off some of that, right? Some of that really granular type of stuff. So, yeah. Paul, definitely Paul. And and I think that the way that Paul interacts with Coffee is really it's true to the character, right? Yeah. It's not all the things that I wish a character would have done, but you know, I didn't write the story. Yeah. You've mentioned the serialization a couple of times and how it works. Like 
you were reading this when it came out, right? So like, how was that as an experience to have to, to like, to get a bit and then wait a month and get a bit more? Because I, I, I keep imagining like, you know, whenever a Green Mile anniversary comes along, I'll post something on social media and I'll be like, I'll, I'll always ask the question like, you know, would you like to see King do this again? Do you think it'd be fun? And I'm always torn as to whether it would be fun or whether it'd be agony. Like, how was it when this, when this was coming out month to month? It was fun. Yeah. Well, yeah, definitely a, a touch of agony, right? Like, <laughs> uh, because, you know, I was rushing out to like a grocery store because they were selling them in grocery stores. Yeah. It was so popular, right? So I would just rush out to the grocery store and grab the next month's, right? You know, so it was cool to experience that, like to have to wait for the story uh, month to month. That was, that was really amazing. I, and I think that that was a real gift to readers and to and to literature that King did that. The King of all people would mm. would say, "No, we can do this. We can bring this back. This is something, you know. This is something cool. Like listening to the radio in real time, not streaming everything or whatever. You know, like it's um, you know, it was it was a lot of fun. Even as I struggled with the story, it was a lot of fun because I. I kept waiting to see what he was going to do. Like, mm. is he not going to do with coffee? But I think he's going to do with coffee, you know, as a character, not the resolution as a character. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm like, yo, I think Stephen King just introduced a really problematic character. I think just this is going to pay out, you know? And yeah. so, and so that was a, that was an amazing thing. And, uh, I think I read the whole book together once mm -hmm. after that you know after 96 at some point in the past i i reread it you know as a one as a one sit kind of thing and i mean it was still the story it was still great you know yeah but it was definitely missing the the tension right do you see do you think that that exercise in patience that this was for for readers for king fans do you, i get the sense that personally i think i'd like to give it a try as experiencing it now but I think the wider world just wouldn't have the patience to deal with that. The the way you know, the the we're in such a distracting environment now compared to nineteen ninety six. I I wonder whether he's not done it again because it's just it just wouldn't work these days. So what, what do you think? Do you, do you think there's still a patience for this kind of thing? I don't know. I think I think I think the world doesn't know what it needs until it gets it. Mm. Right. I don't know that we knew that we needed the green mile. And so we got it that way. Right. Yeah. And so I tend to not worry about what the world thinks in the, in those terms. Right. Because most people don't know what they want. And so it's up to us as artists, as creators, as curators, as reviewers. Hey, I say gatekeepers on some level. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, it's important that we really, um, not worry about what they think they want. Right? Because everything that they, you know, every gene, everyone we call a genius now was, you know, not a genius when they came out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so it's important for us to kind of, you know, when we see it, when we can put our eye on genius and, and talent and things that people can use in their lives, it's important for us to not worry about whether or not they know it yeah. or they think. And so I think King could do it again. Um, and it, I, but I think it would take someone of King's stature to make it work. Mm -hmm. 
right? It would have to be somebody pretty big and that people already kind of are into um, on that level. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's not going to be any point in me making my making a serialized novel because very few people would care. But yeah, you know, I, t- I, I get that. Yeah, I feel your pain. <laughs> I mean, we so we we talked we've talked about character. We've talked about the format. Like in terms of in terms of scenes, in terms of just shit that happens in this story. Like, what what are your standout moments in the Green Mile? Uh, well, I think <laughs> I, I will tell you, like, when they throw Percy into the soft padded robe, <laughs> I just thought that that was there was I you know I you, you I really hate the character right, and so any bad thing that happens to him, I took great joy and delight in. Um, and so. I think there was something about that scene and it just really, it really stuck with me. I think just because he got his comeuppance, I think is how that played out. And, um, and the way that they played that in the movie, I thought was just excellent. Yeah. Well, I wanted to, I wanted to mention the movie. Can't really talk about the Green Mile and not mention it because it's such a, mm-hmm. a staggering achievement of cinema, like for something that lengthy and that critically acclaimed, like are, are you a fan of, of the movie as well as the book? I mean, don't tell Spike Lee, but yeah, I'm a fan of the movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, whenever I'm kind of blasting through the television channels, if it's on, I will stop for at least a few minutes to see what's happening. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it, de- it definitely has that. It has something about it for sure. Um, so I guess we're, we're we're pretty much done on the Green Mile now. But I guess to wrap off, this is a question I always ask my guests for all of their books. If somebody watching or listening to this hadn't given the Green Mile a go yet and needed a bit of convincing, what what three words would you use to sum up the Green Mile for someone who's who's not gone in on it yet? Death Row Magic. Like, yeah, like it. That's good. This is ultimately a prison story, right? So Yeah. Great. Okay. Nice. Well, Scott, we are we are almost done. Um and it's been a great chat and it's like i said at the start it's so good to actually talk to you and not just dm you all the time so it's been a real pleasure um but before i let you go and this isn't optional this is just like this is happening so are you, are you ready to do it basically but um it's time for you to go through the quick fire 19 question king challenge so uh, like i said we're doing it um just wanted to check like are, are you ready to go sure <laughs> <laughs> good so i mean you'll know from listening to to season one it's the same 19 questions that all of my guests get uh, get asked and it's essentially a quick fire round you don't need to explain anything um i might ask you for explanation if something completely throws me but otherwise let's just uh, let's just power through it so um let's get into it um what was your first king book that you ever read irish starter and what's the most recent one you've read wendy's final task mm-hmm What's your all-time favorite King book? Dead Zone. Yes, great choice. And uh, what about your all-time least favorite? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's so many. Um, I'm going to go with the... Uh, I'm going to go with Eyes of the Dragon. I'm not a fan. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Um, what do you think is King's most underrated book? Today, my answer is The Dark Half. Mm-hmm. That doesn't get enough love. Okay. 
changing that in this season. I will give you a, a sneak sneak preview. Um, which King book has your favorite cover artwork? I think I got to go with the stand. It's an iconic cover, right? The, the one with the Jedi and the, the, yeah. the plague. Like it's completely yeah. not the story, but it's <laughs> yeah. how it is. Right? Okay. And what about your least favorite cover art? Insomnia. That's, it looks like what it describes. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the original, the red and white one. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, what's the one King book that you could recommend to any type of reader? So I usually just say, I, I usually have to get two answers. Okay. Do you like short stories or do you like novels? And so for novels, it's the dead zone. And for short stories, it's night shift. Mm-hmm. Yep. Great examples. Um, in terms of adaptations, movies, TV series, whatever, what's your favorite King adaptation? Shawshank Redemption. Uh-huh. And what I about yours? Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Hard to argue with that. And what about your least favorite? Uh, <laughs> uh, maximum Overdrive. Okay. Yeah. The waste of a great story. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's cocaine for you. <laughs> um, which, uh, if you could have a King character make a cameo in your own writing, who would you like to have? I would love to take a swipe at Dick Halloran. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know, you mentioned earlier that you don't necessarily write like Stephen King, but if I forced you to pick a King book or story that is most similar to your style of writing, what would you, what would you um, throw back at me? Oh, it's got to be, oh man. Oh, you know, here's an interesting choice. Oh, with no, no, yeah. Let's say the Running Man. Okay, it's got a it's got a beat and rhythm to it that, that I like and that that I think that I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Cool. And um, for this question, I just want you to give me one King book for each of these. So one King book that you would keep forever, reread as many times as you like. Just, just love forever and ever. One that you read only once and then just put on your shelf and just never really pick up again. And one that you would happily delete from existence. So the Keep Forever book is. I want to. I'm going to try to stop saying the Dead Zone every day. <laughs> I don't mind. Uh, so I think the Keep Forever book I'm going to say is. Uh, is going to be. It, mm-hmm. uh, the read only once book is probably uh, got to be uh, the read only once. I'm gonna say, oh, revival. Okay, it's a good book. You only need it once, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the delete from existence. That's his story. Okay. Yeah, I'm not. Oh my God, I'm not a fan. Okay. And and then for the final five of this challenge, it's just a straight either or. Um, again, no explanation needed. Um, we'll just rattle through these. So do you prefer the book or the movie? The book. The stand or it? It. 
Would you rather a holiday in Derry or a night at the Overlook? Holiday in Derry, even though they abhor black people. <laughs> I was going to say, that is, that is a bold move. I mean, that's, that's like the... Forgive me if this sounds awful. That In my head, that is like the inverse at the start of Die Hard 3, almost. Like, I don't know. Um, anyway, <laughs> I'm distracting myself here. Um, short story or full novel? Uh, it used to be a short story. Now it's full novel. Okay. And lastly, uh, oh, go on, go on. I was just going to say, King, like when King started doing short stories, like his first handful of collections were like indestructible, indestructible, just incredible ideas. Uh, but in my opinion, his short stories have kind of lost their luster in more recent collections. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. And lastly, um, would you rather go for walkies with Cujo or have a weekend with Annie Wilkes? I go with Cujo. Go yeah. Cujo. He's a good he's boy. Like to run. <laughs> yeah, and he he's a he's a good boy at heart. It's not his fault. This is what I say to everybody in this question. Um again, rambling now. Scott, thank you so much for your time. This has been this has been really good to to chat and go through all of these things. Um before we wrap this up, I just wanted to like throw it over to you to to basically just plug what you've got on. So where can people find you? Um, where can they find your work? What should they be looking at? What have you got coming up? The floor is yours, my friend. So I, um, as a writer, um, you can find some of my stuff online at uh, stoutwoodswrites.net. Um, I have three books, two books of poetry and one book of essays about prints. You can find all of those on like Amazon. Um, and I'm supposed to be finishing up at least one book this year, so... Fingers crossed on that. Preferred. Um, and then the work that I do with Streetlight Guild is just streetlightguild.org. Uh, while that has a very local focus, a lot of people outside of my city follow it and pay attention to it because we do lots of cool things and sometimes it's inspiring. And I'd also throw in your podcast, uh, Race Against the Machine. I've really, really been enjoying that. Definitely, I'll put links to that in the description. Um, and in terms of your your socials, what what uh, where do people... What handles have you got? What, what do people need to search for to find you? So on, um, I'm on Facebook. It's pretty clear that it's me. Mm -hmm. Just look for the Doctor Who scar. <laughs> yeah. Um, on Twitter, it's Scott Wood says, mm -hmm. and on Instagram, it's uh, Scott Woods rolls. Okay. Great. Well, there we go. And I'll make sure links to all of those are in the description. Um, but yeah, we've made it, we're done. So Scott, again, thank you so much. It's been, it's been so good to chat and, um, it's a real, genuinely a real honor and a thrill to have you on this, um, this season. I, you know, I, I know I reached out to you when I first had the idea of the podcast and we, we couldn't get it done in time for season one, but, um, couldn't think of a, a better guest to have on season two. So thank you so much for giving up your time and, and being so generous and, um, yeah, it's just been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I'm a huge fan. So keep up the good work. Oh, well. Same to you. Same to you, my friend. And we'll, we'll, we'll speak soon. There we go. What a great way to kick off season two of Concert Writers. Thank you so much to Scott for his time and his wisdom and his energy and his support of the podcast and all of those other things as well. 
you can return the favor by checking out Scott's work. His collection of poetry is great. Even for somebody like me who struggles with poetry, as I talked about in the conversation, I got a lot out of this. Check out his writing online. I'll make sure that there's links to everything in the descriptions. Check him out on Twitter and Instagram. He's a great follow. And hey, let me know in the comments what you think about what we discussed, particularly about what we talked about with Magical Negroes, the Green Mile, all of that kind of stuff. And of course, if you want to check out Scott's lecture on Magical Negroes, which you absolutely should, and don't be put off by the fact that it's two hours long. It's one of the best two hours you will ever invest in yourself and your growth as a reader. Take the time to watch it. It's linked in the description. If you're listening to the audio version of this, do check out the description. It's on YouTube. Absolutely check it out. It will change your perspective, not just on Stephen King, but on literature in general, particularly if, like me, you're a white guy who has kind of cruised through life based on just privileges that you've just been handed to you and you've never been forced to challenge yourself or think differently about things. Watch Scott's lecture. It, it really does change how you will approach a lot of things in life. Anyway, got a bit deep for the ending there, but it's important stuff. So thank you so much for joining me on season two of Concert Writers. Do share this episode with a friend if you think they'd like it. Check out season one and, of course, come back next week because we're going to be discussing the dark half with my friend and yours, Mr. Garth Jones. Until then, take care, and I'll be back with another concert writer very soon.